navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. Thank you for joining me on this third episode of season two of The Mentor ESQ. I'm Andrew Smiley, and today we're gonna to talk about the fitness industry and fitness industry liability. And in advance, I wanna thank the New York State Academy of Trial Lawyers, and you can thank them as well, because they're gonna give us all credit uh, for this CLE podcast. So there is a link uh, in the description for this podcast, wherever you're watching it, just go to the description and there'll be a link. And at the end of the link, you click on it, you'll fill out a one-page form online and submit it. And then you'll get you'll see your CLE certificate emailed to you. So it's pretty cool. It's free. We'll all get uh, some credit uh, for this conversation. Uh, there will be uh, two codes read that I will give you during this podcast episode uh, and uh, different times. And you'll have to enter those codes. So either try and remember them or just jot them down because uh, you are have to put those on the form to con confirm you actually listen to me <laughs> to get the credit. So the fitness industry is obviously, it's a huge industry and um, fitness has been a big part of my life. Um, you know, I, I, was, I wasn't a collegiate athlete. I'm not a professional athlete at any time, but um, I grew up playing all kinds of sports. I grew up skiing every winter uh, up in Vermont and I played lacrosse and tennis uh, on my high school teams and went to tennis camps and I'm still really active. I play tennis every week, singles tennis. I really enjoy it. And uh, I practice yoga now. I've started doing that over the last couple of years. I actually just practiced today. I did a virtual yoga session uh, during this pandemic. So much is virtual. Uh, gyms are still closed in many places. They're starting to open up. Uh, but the virtual fitness industry has been bigger than ever. It started to get really big before this pandemic that we're all living through. And now it's even bigger because people are stuck at home. Uh, so I practice yoga virtually. And uh, some of you know that I've practiced martial arts, Muay Thai kickboxing, uh, lifting weights since I was younger, and I enjoy it. I find that the physical exercise is really an outlet for me, uh, not only to keep me healthy, uh, but also mentally clear. Uh, as a trial lawyer, uh, you may find this as well. Part of what makes you good at what you do and what I think makes me good is my ability to constantly work things over in my mind. I'm always thinking, and sometimes I can't get out of my head because I'm thinking too much. Uh, so it's a skill that's great because you can organize things in your mind. It helps you uh, to perform well at trial, to think clearly, to present clearly. I'm always working on cases. I wake up at all hours of the night thinking about something on a case or a deposition or a trial. So the mind's always racing, and I find that um, exercise and being in fitness is a great way to clear the mind. And it's also a great way to focus on something else. When I'm running around on a tennis court, uh, trying to hit that ball uh, and play my points, I'm not thinking about my cases. So I find it's a really good mental escape. It's very therapeutic. Uh, so if fitness is not a part of your life, I highly encourage you. I think it makes me a better lawyer, a better person, and certainly healthier. 
Um, in New York City, I used to get all my fitness uh, going to and from the office and up and down the stairs to the subway and everybody walks around and we're all being a little bit more lazy now if those of us that have offices in the city that aren't commuting and walking as much. So it's even more important now. So I encourage you, especially during these tough times, uh, to try and incorporate fitness. So what happened is uh, during being in the fitness industry, I became friendly with a lot of personal trainers. I've joined gyms. I've just been around it a lot. I've observed a lot. I've learned a lot. And I've noticed when trainers are doing things improperly, negligently, and when gyms are not safe environments uh, for people to perform and exercise in, and that there's many unfortunate opportunities for injury. Uh, and the most important thing in any type of physical activity, sports, training, uh, is safety, of course. And it's a gym's responsibility and fitness instructor's responsibility to make sure that you're safe uh, when you're under their guidance and supervision. And if they're not taking those steps, reasonable steps to make sure that you're safe, then they can be held liable if you're injured and you bring a lawsuit. And so I've been consulted on these cases, uh, fitness in, uh, injury cases, and uh, I've had a really good amount of success, I think because of my personal insight into the fitness industry and my access to experts and colleagues I can speak to, uh, to bounce things off of. But I've really learned a lot through litigating many of these cases. I've tried these cases to verdict. I've litigated them to the appellate courts, uh, issues of law, and uh, I've had different fact patterns, different cases, different venues. So I've seen a lot. And I'd like to share with you um, what I've learned. And, you know, during this pandemic, um, everyone's businesses are affected. Uh, and we're not all maybe getting the same amount of business. Uh, we might be considering branching out into different practice areas or types of cases we take. So, you know, when we're done with this episode of the podcast, I think you will feel very comfortable that if a, a fitness liability type case comes across um, your desk, so to speak, either on the plaintiff side or the defense side, that you will hopefully have a, a, a pretty good understanding of what's involved and have a comfort level of perhaps being able to take on that case uh, on behalf of the injured party or on behalf of the insurance company for the gym or for the trainer. So let's go through the main areas and I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and break it down uh, pretty closely for you. Uh, I've attached samples uh, in the uh, links as well to the description of this podcast. Uh, you can find a sample a complaint uh, against a gym and a trainer. You could find a sample um, summary judgment um, motion, uh, my affirmation in opposition to when the defense moved to dismiss the case and my cross motion as part of that uh, for summary judgment for us. And so those are both in word format. You can use those as samples and um, they're all based on a similar fact pattern of a case I had. And it's a case I'm going to talk about uh, during this podcast to illustrate the different areas uh, that are involved in this type of litigation. Uh, but before I get into the fact pattern, uh, there are three uh, real areas that we're going to cover. Um, and one in much more detail than the others. The first is a club, fitness club, gyms, rock climbing gyms, uh, big mainstream gyms like Equinox, 
Crunch, LA Fitness, Planet Fitness, uh, any type of gym facility, uh, how they can have liability uh, if someone is injured on their property or um, while working out at their gym or taking a class at their gym. Uh, we're going to talk about specifically personal trainer negligence, and that's going to be whether or not the personal trainer uh, is training uh, a client in the gym itself, uh, whether they have their own uh, facility, whether they're training someone in their home uh, or in their apartment building gym, or if they're training someone virtually. Uh, like I was just discussing the yoga I took uh, because a lot of people are training at home now virtually with trainers. I know many of them and they're, they're doing quite well through it. But the, the, the liability applies regardless of where the training takes place. So we're going to look at personal trainer negligence. We're going to look at the facilities negligence. And then we're going to look at the issues involved as far as defenses, uh, as far as waivers and assumption of risk. Those are really the three areas. And I'm going to touch first on the gym itself, the, the fitness facility, uh, and when they may be liable. And uh, then I'm going to go into great detail about the personal trainers, because that's primarily where you're going to see these cases. And then we'll talk about uh, the assumption of risk and waivers. So first off, when you're dealing with bringing a lawsuit against a gym, there's going to be only a few areas of potential liability where someone could be injured in a gym. The first is going to be the gym as property owner and uh, manager of a premises. Uh, you can have slip and falls, trip and falls in gyms. You could have somebody tripping over improperly placed equipment, uh, tripping over carpet that comes up or mats. Uh, so those are going to be issues where you may have uh, a case or a claim where someone's injured. Someone trips over something and falls into a weight rack and, and sustains a serious injury. Uh, so those are going to be the similar laws that you'd find in any other type of premises case. The other type of claims you're going to find uh, that you would have to be involved with against a fitness facility is going to be um, negligent supervision of their employees, of their trainers, of their group fitness instructors, uh, negligent supervision of them, negligent hiring. So really hiring, training, and supervision. Uh, they can be negligent in that area, Jim. So they would be involved. Um, when people take group fitness classes at gyms and they get injured, those usually aren't cases uh, worth pursuing. Uh, because the question always becomes, how come that one client that contacts you uh, was the only one in a class of 30 in you know, the step class or in the high intensity training class? Why was your, the person who called you or contacted you, uh, if you're a plaintiff's counsel, the one and only person of everyone that got injured? It's hard to say that the instructor was doing something improper when only one person was injured. Um, they're just harder cases, um, much harder than one-on-one -on -one training situation. So you don't see much of those. I get it. I'm amazed. Uh, probably a month doesn't go by where I get a call from someone that stepped onto a moving treadmill and sustained an injury. And every single time they say, you know, I didn't see it moving. Um, it shouldn't have been moving. There must've been something wrong with it. Um, those are generally not going to be cases either. So you're really only going to be involved with a gym um, if there's somehow a connection between either uh, a premises type injury or their failure to properly train, hire, and supervise their trainers, their instructors. So let's talk about 
what I'd like to get into where you see most of these cases, and that's with the personal trainers. And again, whether they're training you in your home, online through your TV or computer, or in a facility, personal trainers are professionals, and they are required to comply with the standard of care in the industry, just like any other type of negligence case, professional negligence. Some of you may think of a medical malpractice case, um, or a chiropractic case, or a dental case, or a nursing case. Um, there are various types of professionals, and they all have to comply within the industry standards and within the standard of care. In uh, the personal training industry, over the last several decades, has really, really come a long way. Uh, it's not just somebody who, you know thinks, hey, lift some more weights and you'll get stronger. Someone that just comes up with things uh, off the cuff, training you because they did it when they were in high school or maybe they were an athlete and learned something and they're trying to train you. That's not how it works anymore. There's very uh, specific certifications, very specific tests, uh, very specific organizations and standards that personal trainers are expected to go through to learn uh, and to apply when uh, training somebody. And if they don't follow the proper standards um, and follow the, the rules within the industry and someone's injured, um, then they're gonna be held liable for failing to comply with the standard of care. So you're gonna have to learn what to look for and what standards there are. So let's talk about those a little bit. First of all, most personal trainers are certified and they should be certified. Unfortunately, despite years and years, uh, I've spoken with many industry ins insiders, uh, and they've tried to get some sort of uniform, you know, board system, like how the, the doctors have to take their boards in a specific area. Um, and lawyers, we all have to take a bar exam. There's been a real push among, amongst the industry leaders, and it just hasn't happened, um, to unify some type of standardized uh, board and exam, practical, uh, where they're doing stuff physically and being observed with working with clients, as well as um, a written exam or computer exam to test their knowledge, uh, to certify someone, a, a regular uh, across the board certification. There's not, but what there is, uh, is several well-known companies that certify trainers. There's always gonna be sort of the smaller uh, ones that aren't too well-known, really aren't accredited, aren't respected in the industry. Um, and there are those that are well-known and accredited and well-respected. And those are the ones that most personal trainers, certainly ones that are uh, spending a lot of time working with clients on a regular basis at a gym with their own companies, they should have these. Um, one of them is through the American Council on Exercise, known as ACE. So ACE is a very well-known and respected certification. Uh, there's another one uh, called uh, NASM, the National Association of Sports Medicine. Um, so those are two very well-known ones uh, as far as certifications. Um, there's various others. Um, some well-known gyms have their own certification program that are quite good. Equinox has, I uh, believe, the Equinox Fitness Training Institute, EFTI, where they ensure that all of their trainers go through their own certification process so they know exactly how their trainers are training clients of the gym. Uh, and that's great. Uh, so there's some uniformity there. 
so in any case, you're always going to want to first explore whether the personal trainer um, has these certifications. And if not, uh, then they may not be complying with the standard of care. And if a gym hires and, uh, and has one of their employees training you or your client who's a member of the gym uh, and didn't make sure that their employee was properly certified, then they're going to be liable for that. So these are things you want to look into, all right, as far as certifications. And there's very different um, fact patterns that I've come across uh, as far as personal trainer negligence cases. The one I'm going to talk about during this podcast is uh, a case I had where my client, a woman in her 30s, a bartender living in New York City, um, was getting a little out of shape and she had never really worked out before and she wanted to get fit. So she joined Crunch uh, Gym in Brooklyn and uh, she, as many gyms have, when you sign up, they really promote training sessions. You usually get a assessment done for free, maybe your first training sessions thrown in because they're all about the sales and, and uh, making money. They want to hook you in uh, if you're a new client with training sessions. So um, that's what happened with my client. She uh, joined the gym and she uh, got connected with a trainer. She assumed the trainer you know, knew what he was doing. Um, he was considered a high level trainer within the gym. Um, he was assigned to her and he started training her. And on one of the relatively early training sessions going on, she trained a few times before with him, he had her do an exercise called um, a step up or an alternating step ups, where he had her come up along a bench, picture like any bench you'd lie on to do a bench press on, for example, and stand next to it and do these toe taps with the steps. Um, so she'd uh, step up with her left foot, tap it, then she'd switch and hop and tap it with her right foot, switch and hop, tap it with her left foot. And the very first time that she went to go do this exercise, as she alternated her feet and tried to tap up, instead of tapping with her foot on top uh, of the bench, her foot got caught under the lip of the bench and she fell backwards. She put out her wrist behind her to break her fall and she shattered both of her wrists, had to have surgery with plates and screws uh, inserted in both of her wrists. So that's the case and she contacted me. Now, as you're listening to this, think to yourself, is this a case? Is it not a case? Um, what do you think? Do you think this would be successful or not? Um, is there any negligence here? What did the guy do wrong? Uh, didn't she assume certain risks going to the gym? These are all issues that as lawyers we have to explore. And I'm going to go through that with you, how I looked into this case, uh, the issues that came about, and, um, and what happened and, and how we addressed it. So the first thing I did was an investigation. Like any other case that you're handling on the plaintiff or defense side, you have to do your investigation. What I want to know in any gym injury or personal training injury is, are there any records? I'd like to see the file of the trainer. If the gym has a file on the trainer uh, so we can see the certifications, all of that. Usually don't get that until discovery, um, but you'll do your research. You go online, look up the trainer, look up the gym. So much stuff is available out there in the public venue now to find out. See if you're dealing with an experienced person or non, non-experienced person. Um, see if there's an accident report, try and get it. Not always easy. Usually ask the client to try and get it. Um, see uh, what that says. See if it confirms the version uh, that your client uh, tells you. Also, um, you want to find out what kind of forms were filled out. 
I always want to see what the membership forms are, what the waivers that they sign, um, whether this was a private training gym where it was only one-on-one training, whether this was a big gym like a Crunch or an Equinox, whether this was at someone's home, because depending on where it is, is going to have an effect on whether or not a waiver is going to be valid or not. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So you want to look into all of this at the outset uh, and start screening your case before you would even consider getting underway with it because you don't want to take a case only to find out, for example, that your client signed a waiver that is going to be found to be valid and that um, you're really going to get thrown out on summary judgment. So you want to make sure about that. Um, at this point, I'm going to quickly give you the first code. Uh, so make sure you jot this down because you have to put it on the form to get the credit. Uh, and the code is FIT, as in FIT, FIT123, FIT123. So that is the first code. There'll be another code uh, towards the end of the podcast. FIT123 is code number one. So you're going to want to see all those documents and you're going to want to do your investigation. You're going to get medical records uh, to confirm the injury, to see the statements, to confirm obviously that the injury uh, occurred and it's noted to have occurred the same way you're being told. Once you verify that and you look through all that, then you have to say, all right, in this case, this fact pattern I gave you, what was done wrong? Well, the first thing that you need to learn about, if you don't know already, is something called uh, program design. This is a key part of any personal trainer negligence case. Uh, all of these certifications, all of the training uh, courses, every published book uh, that's considered authoritative in this area uh, will have big sections on what's called program design. And it's just like it sounds. The trainer is required to design a program uh, for the client to follow. And the easiest way to think about it is it's a session by session. So let's say a, a client signs up for a 10, 10 session pack is going to train once a week or twice a week. The trainer is supposed to design a program that is going to start basically with the easiest type of exercise and slowly get a little bit more challenging and complex um, with each session as long as the client is showing they are capable to progress to the next level. Um, and that is sort of the most basic and simple way to describe what a program design is. A trainer will actually um, take out a book. They will have an area to put in the client's name to, um, to put down what kind of exercises they're planning uh, for the upper body. Let's say they want to focus on strengthening uh, the upper body, the chest, the arms. They may say, all right, we're going to do basic dumbbell curls with five pounds, three, um, three sets of 10 reps each. That means 10 curls, take a break. That's the first set, 10 curls, take another break. That's the second set. And then on the second session, and they're writing all this program in advance, um, we're going to move that up to, you know, maybe 15 pounds or whatever it is. Or we're going to make it instead of a bicep curl, um, we're going to have them um, sit down and lift their feet up as opposed to standing up with the same amount of weight. Because without the, the base of your feet, that's going to make it more challenging. So there's lots of ways to progress an exercise. And it's a, that's a concept in this field called progression, where you start with the basic and you progress it to make it more difficult. And there's so many ways to progress different exercises. Now in this fact pattern that I'm talking about, 
Um, what we learned is that, first of all, the trainer didn't have any program designed uh, for our client. And you'll find that's usually the case. They all study it. They all know they're supposed to do it. They all know why they're supposed to do it. Um, but very few trainers actually uh, develop a program for their clients. They have a meetup and they just wing it. Let's try this. Let's do that. Um, they may remember the weights that the client lifted last time or the exercises and just try something different. Um, but that's the first place where I find I really nail um, the defendants on these cases is their failure to have a proper program designed. And you can usually find out that they're given actually a program book that they're supposed to fill everything in uh, and it's empty. Um, that happens almost all the time. It's very rare that you get a detailed program. So um, in the case that I had, when I consulted with a trainer as an expert, I was told that this was a very progressed exercise and that before you would have uh, the client alternating feet and tapping up on an elevated surface, you have her standing on the ground and just hopping back and forth. Um, then maybe you have her do it on a little step, step down and back. Um, maybe not hop, maybe step up and then step back down. And then you, there's so many ways to progress it. Maybe give her a exercise ball to hold on while she's flat on the ground uh, because there's balance involved. There's all types of things going on between the mind and the body to make sure that it's safe and everything's working properly to safely uh, conduct exercises. So the basic theory of our case was a uh, program design wasn't done. Uh, she was progressed way too fast and didn't have the ability for her skill set or her, her mind and her memory uh, and her physical activity to do the exercise. It may seem simple, but it's actually quite difficult. And that's why she fell. Um, like any other case, you're going to want to get an expert, a really good expert who's going to guide you through all this. So you can give this fact pattern to the expert. So what I do in my cases is I consult with top training experts and you make sure they have all these certifications and they have a lot of experience and they are well qualified um, and they will walk through it and they will point you to the publications that talk about um, when exercises should be progressed, how to progress them safely. And they'll talk about the standard of care and point you in that direction. And they'll testify um, and help you defeat summary judgment in showing that there were departures from the standard of care. Uh, that's what happened in my case. A motion was made to dismiss saying she assumed the risk and um, everyone goes to the gym. She, she didn't have to do the exercise was the argument. She chose to do it. And, um, you know, people fall and get hurt. And we cross moved and that's what's attached. You'll see a sample of that uh, in the materials. Um, saying that not only um, did she not assume the risk, uh, but that she expected to be safe. And that's why she had a trainer. That's always, that's always my best argument, is that the whole reason that my clients hire trainers is to safely exercise and not hurt themselves by going into a gym without someone with knowledge to train them. Um, so we fought back on summary judgment. We said it wasn't a risk. Um, and you'll see there's a, a case that I cite in my papers. I think it's Morgan versus the state court of appeals. And um, there is um, a law that talks about assumption of risk. It basically says that if your negligence or negligence increases the potential for injury, and there's any argument that, but for the negligence, this injury wouldn't have occurred, then the assumption of risk goes out the window. So if we argue that my client didn't have any, take any risk, 
To the contrary, she didn't want any risk. That's why she had a trainer. And this trainer created a dangerous environment. Then the assumption of risk goes out. And, and that's getting ahead of myself with the defenses, but that's in essence what happened. So you need the expert to help you go through all of that. Um, and you're going to look at the program design. You're also going to look at whether or not they do a proper assessment. There's always a baseline assessment that's done. There's something called a PAR-Q. That's a physical activity readiness questionnaire, a PAR-Q. Um, and it's supposed to give the trainer information. Is this person, if I showed up um, and I go through this PAR-Q and this initial assessment, I'll probably do better than someone that's never worked out before. Um, and that's important for a trainer to know because I'll be able to do certain exercises that someone who's never stepped foot in a gym would not be able to do. And someone who is a college athlete or gymnast perhaps uh, is going to be able to do stuff that I could never think of doing. So you're going to look at the individual assessments, the PARQ, you're going to look at the program design, and there's a proper way for training and you're going to see if that trainer followed that. Okay. Um, then you want to find out as far as the gym, did the gym make sure that its employees um, had the proper credentials to train its clients? Uh, so did they hire them properly? Was it negligent hiring? They just hired anybody because they looked buff and thought they could uh, bring in business? Um, did they provide any training? Very few gyms provide actual training to their trainers on the proper way to train. Um, and did they properly supervise? Um, I know when I was a member at Equinox with a lot of close people to me that were trainers there, that the trainers had to hand in their program designs every week for the clients and their supervisor, the training supervisor, uh, would review them and make sure that they all made proper progressions and that they were safe. A good gym will do that. I had a case different from this fact pattern I'm telling you about uh, more recently uh, against um, another well-known gym. And I was stunned to learn that um, all that was required to be hired is that uh, the person applying to be a trainer and be employed had to show they got some type of certification. And this person that injured my client did one online, didn't really know anything. And then they didn't give any guidance on how to train people and they didn't supervise. They let this person train however he wanted to train. Um, and I was floored by that. Um, we settled that case. Uh, and if we didn't, uh, the jury would hear that, you know, you're joining this gym thinking that the person training you uh, is backed by the gym, being trained by them, being supervised, not some solo flyer, which is what this guy was. And he wasn't good and he was doing everything wrong. So you're going to want to look into all of these things. There's a lot to look into um, when you're exploring um, negligence. And um, usually you're gonna find out pretty good stuff when it comes to gyms. That's why if there is a serious injury, they're usually good cases. And they're really hard for defendants to defend uh, because there's a lot of areas that there's sloppiness um, as far as oversight and hiring and training. That's just how it works. So then, you want to consider uh, when you get underway with the case, um, what theories are there? There's the negligent program design. Um, there's pushing them too hard. There's not doing the proper assessment to make sure you're designing a safe program. But there's another one that you're certain to come across that if there's a serious injury almost all the time uh, when a personal trainer is involved, if it happens, it's because the trainer is not spotting the client properly. 
you may know what that means, spotting, but it is in essence, it's staying close, it's keeping hands up, uh, it's putting hands on the person to assist them with the weight, to assist them with their balance. It's the trainer being in a position to catch the uh, person if they lose their balance and they fall, to break their fall. Uh, if they can't hold the weights anymore and they're gonna come crashing down to grab the weights off of them, um, to be there to support their elbows, their wrists, their hips, and whatever activity they're doing to make sure they're safe and to position themselves that if they have them performing jumping exercises or balance exercises, exercises that it's foreseeable they could lose their balance and fall, a trainer needs to be in a position to catch them and prevent the fall. And that's called spotting. And nine times out of 10, if there's a serious injury, usually there's a failure to spot. And it means the trainer's off to the side on his or her phone or just not paying close attention. Uh, but trainers need to be present there, hands at the ready. And I've had so many cases where the trainer just didn't spot. And the proof is in the pudding when uh, your client falls and sustains an injury. You say, well, where's the trainer? The trainer says, well, I was there. Well, you weren't there because if you're doing your job right, you would have broken the fall or at least attempted to break the fall. Um, I'm amazed at how many times clients fall and sustain injury and the trainer doesn't even get a hand on them before they hit the ground. So I use that against them. I literally say, did you even get a hand on that person before they fell? And you're supposed to make sure that they were being trained safely? Come on. So negligent spotting, uh, negligent program design, these are all areas you're going to look into uh, to prove uh, a viable negligence case. Uh, and then it trickles down to, or trickles up rather, to the gym for failing to teach them, supervise them, and train them, and oversee them. And when you get underway uh, and decide there's something there, then you file the complaint. I have a sample complaint in this fact pattern uh, included in the materials, so you can use that and uh, modify it as you see fit. But there's nothing too special to a complaint. Again, it's a basic theory of negligence. You're going to want to put in there all the phrases that I have in the sample of failure to do a proper assessment, program design, spotting, um, uh, all of that, uh, anything you can think of based on the facts in your specific case. And then once you get the answer in and you get underway with discovery, you're going to want to immediately demand the trainer's personnel file. You're entitled to it. You're going to push for it. Um, you're going to want all the forms that your client filled out. You're going to want to specifically ask for logbooks, program design booklets, uh, questionnaires, assessments. Uh, and if they don't have it, that's a problem. And if they do have them, then they're usually not filled out. So discovery is really, really important to push for in these cases. And you got to go to bat. You can't um, give up on pushing for personnel files uh, and every document that applies to your client in the case. And if you're defending these cases, you're going to want to see that immediately. If you get a call from the insurance company, send me the file, send me everything. I want to see it. Uh, you know, what was this trainer doing? What's the deal with this trainer? Um, you know, where are the programs? What's going on here? Uh, and that'll give you everything that you need to know. Um, now, let's talk about the membership agreement and waiver. Because again, this is where people have a lot of questions. I've had cases go up to the appellate courts, as I've mentioned on the waiver issue. And it's kind of tricky because it doesn't apply the same to all training facilities and all trainers. So first I wanna tell you what the law in New York is. And I encourage you, if you're not in New York State, um, everything I've said so far is applicable. Uh, the standard of care for training is pretty much the same whether you're in Texas 
or South Carolina or New York State or um, South Dakota. By the way, there's someone who listens to my podcast from South Dakota. I don't know who you are, but I see that you listen to it. I was thrilled to see that there's someone in South Dakota who listens to my podcast. Please shoot me a note. Let me know who you are. But this applies to you in South Dakota as well. Um, now, what is different in state by state is the laws, if there's any statutes as far as waivers. That's what you want to research. In New York, our laws uh, that apply uh, in this instance are known as a GOL or general obligations law. And there's a specific one that you need to familiarize yourself with in any uh, physical activity type of injury situation. And that is general obligations law or GOL 5-326. 5-326. Don't worry. I cite it in my motion papers that I next year if you're driving in your car and you can't write it down, but it's GOL 5-326. And what that refers to, that statute, is that agreements uh, that exempt uh, places like pools, gyms, places of public amusement or recreation uh, from liability are void and unenforceable as a matter of law. What does that mean? That means if you go to an amusement park and on the back of your ticket, it says, no matter what happens, we're not gonna be liable and you agree to that to being admitted and you go on a roller coaster and it goes off the tracks and you're injured, they can't use that ticket against you. It's void, it's against public policy. Um, same thing with ski resorts, you're gonna look into that. We have a lot of ski cases. Um, also at gyms, if you get injured in a gym or with a trainer, this statute applies. And uh, if you are required to sign a waiver as I know I am when I join a gym and I laugh every time because you have no choice. If you want to join, you got to sign it. And you're waving, uh, waving everything, giving up your firstborn uh, to join the gym. And it's not going to be valid in the majority of cases. General Obligations Law 5-326 is going to say it's against public policy. You know, if you have a place that's open to the public, you're trying to make money for them to join. It's not a private uh, club at a private, you know, racetrack that only certain people can avoid uh, join. And, you know, gyms, places, people, you know, consumers at large go to um, to join for classes, for working out. Um, they, uh, the burden is on them to make sure that they're safe. It's not fair to put it on consumers saying, if you want to join us, you got to waive liability at the door, okay? However, there is an exception to that. The case law holds in New York State, and that's why you got to check in the different states where you are, is that if it is a one-on-one -on -one trainer with a client, let's say Andrew Smiley, I decide I want to open up my own training business. Um, you call me up, Andrew. You seem to know what you're talking about. I'd love it if you train me. I'd say, great, I'll train you. I need you to sign this form. I want you to know that if you get hurt, you're going to waive all your rights to sue me. You say, all right, I sign the form. You sign the form. I train you. I'm negligent and you get injured. I cannot stand behind uh, GOL 5 uh, I can stop. Uh, let me rephrase that. The client bringing the case uh, and saying, you know, Smiley had that waiver, but don't worry, it's void under GOL 5-326. My waiver wouldn't be void. And the reason is, is that I'm not a place of public amusement. I'm not a gym. I'm not a big company. It's a one-on-one -on -one training session. And so a facility 
that is just trainers, trainers one-on-one. I belong to a gym once called Lift Gym in New York. And the only way that you could go there is if your trainer um, had an agreement to use their facilities. So everybody in there was working one-on-one with their own trainers, uh, sharing the facilities. That was a training facility. So waivers there, one-on-one, you can't go in there by yourself, you're there with a trainer. Those are going to be valid waivers. So if a client approaches me and I find out they got injured by a trainer, even if the trainer is negligent, if it's a one-on-one facility like that, um, the waiver is going to be valid. You have no case. So that's why it's really important you find out where the, um, the injury took place, what type of facility. Was it a trainer's gym? Was it a place uh, bigger, more of your known gyms? And there's a lot of gray lines. I've seen them. Some facilities you're not so sure. Is it a real well-known gym like a crunch that it's going to be void? Is it, but it's not a one-on-one trainer. It's sort of a small group. Generally places of instruction um, where that's solely their purpose. Think of a martial arts studio where it's instruction one-on-one. Those waivers are going to be valid. If it's places that you can go to and work out on your own on the treadmills, and they also offer training services that are ancillary, that's an actual legal term, ancillary. Uh, The training sessions are ancillary to the primary function of the gym, which is for people to come and go to classes and use the pool and use the equipment. Um, Then the waivers are void. But if it's a training facility, one-on-one teaching, um, they're going to be valid. So you really need to find out what you're dealing with, with the waivers. And there's been a lot of litigation. I've been at the forefront of it. And uh, you look at the contracts too, uh, the language in the contract, Um, sometimes I had a case once where it actually was a training gym where my client was injured, badly injured. He was doing a bench press exercise and this trainer was just piling on so much weight, much more weight than our, my client should have been bench pressing, didn't spot him properly. And when he tried to bench press and lift it up, uh, he collapsed, he couldn't hold it. And he tore his pectoral muscle, which was really painful. And he had to have a pretty serious surgery to reconnect it. So originally I was concerned because in that situation, it was a trainer's gym. You could only go with a trainer. Uh, The waiver would have been valid. But then I read the waiver language itself. And it basically said, um, unless it's as a result of negligence, you can't sue the gym or its trainers. (laughs) We are proving negligence or alleging it. And uh, so it wasn't valid. They tried to get out on summary judgment. It actually went up to the appellate division. We won we got the right decision at the trial court and the appeals court said, no, it would have been valid if the language was valid, but it was a poorly written waiver agreement. So you want to be wary of that. Uh, I'm going to give you the second code now. And the good news for you is I'm going to make it the same as the first code. So it's easy to remember and uh, you don't have to put two different codes in. So when you get the form code one was FIT one, two, three, code two, FIT one, two, three, try to make it easy to remember FIT one, two, three. So put those in the codes. Um, Technically, I guess you can hang up on me now and go enter it if you're done. Hopefully, you'll stay with me. I'm only going to be a few more minutes uh, to try and wind some things down. Uh, Unfortunately, this isn't a live uh, recording. Uh, We have some live events coming up. I'm very excited. Stay tuned for those where I'll be taking Q&A. I've given lectures on personal uh, trainer negligence to live audiences. I get a lot of great questions, great fact patterns. Um, so if you have any questions that have come up during this, just shoot me an email, give me a call, uh, send me a direct message on my Instagram at the mentor ESQ, um, all my contact information's in the link, but waivers are really important. 
it's going to make the difference. And you're going to want to start screening that right at the get-go. If it's a serious injury case, whether you're on the plaintiff side or defense side, find out right away, is there a waiver signed? And then find out right away what type of facility it is. And is that waiver going to be valid? Do your research. All you got to do is type in general obligations law or GOL 5-326 in New York. And if you're not in New York state, I would still research that and see if perhaps uh, a state like that you're in has a similar statute. You could sort of pull the same language that gym waivers. I would type in void, public policy, validity. Those would be the keywords you'd want to look at for that. And, um, and then see what happens with the language of the waiver. And if you're a defendant, you got to be careful. You got to plead uh, release and waiver in your answer as an affirmative defense and or move on that, uh, move to dismiss right away uh, before you even put in your answer on a pre-answer motion. Because if you don't plead it, it's waived. And if you don't move on it or plead it, it's waived. And then if you try and raise it after you get underway with discovery, say, oh, we've got a waiver uh, and it could be a valid waiver um, and you move on it, uh, a savvy plaintiff's lawyer is going to check that answer and see that if you pled it and if you didn't, um, then you're stuck uh, and you're barred from bringing it up. Too bad you lose and put your uh, malpractice carrier on notice uh, because you just uh, gave up a valid defense that your client had. So be very careful about that. Always plead it, even if you're not sure. Release, waiver, they've waived their rights. They've already released by document. Um, so you've got to put that in there in the defense right away. In New York, um, amendment of pleadings should be freely given. So oftentimes you can save yourself. You want to move to amend your answer to plead it the time you would make your motion. But be careful because if the longer you wait, if after discovery is complete and then you do it, um, then if I've run into that situation as a plaintiff, I say, hey, it's prejudicial. Even though it should be freely given, don't let them amend their pleading because um, I didn't know that they were going to plead waiver. If they did, I would have had discovery on it. I would have asked all the questions about GOL 5326. Um, is there instruction? Are there group fitness classes? What's going on? Is it a training facility? I would have been prepared to oppose their motion and I didn't have noticed they were going to raise it until discovery. So be aware uh, of pleading. Um, if a plaintiff's case in New York for trainer negligence and fitness industry liability cases, it's always the same statute as other injury cases, uh, unless it's a municipal a municipality, which I haven't seen, um, but they're all private companies. So it's three years in the state of New York. Uh, other states are gonna have different statutes, usually shorter. So check your statute of limitations. It's gonna be from the date of injury, the date from when your client falls. Uh, the other practice tip I want to give you is I had a case um, where uh, my client was injured at a gym under the care of a personal trainer, uh, resulting in a fracture of her vertebrae that she had to have fusion surgery on. And when I reviewed the documents originally uh, about waiver and release to see what I was dealing with, I saw that there was some waiver language. But again, I knew because of this type of gym that I'd be successful on uh, saying that it was void under the GOL law. Um, however, they had a mandatory arbitration agreement in the document saying that any disputes would be resolved, agreed to go to mandatory arbitration. Now, generally, as plaintiff's lawyers, we want a trial by jury, 
trial, uh, you know, your peers to determine uh, what, uh, what the results should be for you and how much of any to award you. Jurors usually give more money than arbitrators, at least that's sort of conventional thought. Uh, but it turned out the venue where this case would be in New York, it would have been uh, in an unfriendly plaintiff venue in a conservative district. And when I saw there was a mandatory arbitration clause, I said, hey, why fight it? Let's file for arbitration immediately. Uh, arbitration goes a lot faster. And it's certainly during these COVID times when there are no trials uh, moving forward in civil cases, uh, everything's put on hold. We don't know when we're going to be having civil jury trials again, um, which is pretty sad and crazy and unfortunate. Uh, but I've always been a proponent of arbitration because you can move your cases. And here, I felt that even an arbitrator, if I could educate the arbitrator properly on values and the seriousness of the case, the seriousness of the injury, that I could get equally as good an award uh, that I would get and probably better even than if I was before a jury. And so we filed for arbitration and they couldn't push back on it because it was in their own clause. So um, these cases may even be better to handle now because a lot of them have the mandatory arbitration. And although it may be as a plaintiff, your natural instinct to say, that's not fair, you can't do it, we should fight it. They're not allowed to have mandatory arbitration clauses. Um, I say, go with it, file the arbitration. Uh, it'll probably be one of the cases you'll be very happy to get resolved while your other ones are waiting to go for trial. Similarly on the defense side, uh, my colleagues out there, uh, you know who you are listening and thank you for listening. On the defense side, um, you know, they're not happy about the fact that there's no trials either. That's how they earn their income. And if you're a defense lawyer, uh, you wanna move cases, arbitration's a great way to keep busy and do depositions and move towards and prepare for arbitrations like you would for a trial and put your energy and your resources into it. So if you have a case against a gym and uh, for any, against any company for that matter. And in the agreement, it talks about mandatory arbitration. Don't fight it, go with it. That's my recommendation. I think you'll get resolution a lot faster that way. So what happened in my case? What do you think about that fact pattern of the toe tap and the alternating step ups and the fall? Um, what happened? Well, what happened was uh, summary judgment got denied both ways. Uh, the judge said it was a it was an issue of fact for a jury to decide whether or not the trainer was negligent in this uh, specific fact pattern, whether or not it was a safe exercise to perform, whether or not the trainer properly spotted our client, and um, and we went towards trial. The uh, defense uh, filed an appeal um, on assumption of risk. And that went up to the second department and they lost that appeal. Again, assumption of risk, except in really rare situations, not only in these cases, but in other cases that I've seen, believe it or not, a lot of people think it's an issue of law, but it's really an issue of fact. It's up for the jury to decide whether under a certain fact pattern, uh, the plaintiff uh, you know, assumed the risk of injury. And as long as you can argue that there was no risk if or but for uh, the negligence of the defendant causing the injury. There wouldn't be a risk. So in other words, in my case, our argument was if she wasn't told to do this exercise and trusting in her trainer that it was fine and safe to do, why, you know, why, is, why is she assuming any risk? She assumed to the contrary, she'd be fine. 
Um, she didn't know. It's up to them, the trainer, to make sure she was safe. The only reason that she sustained an injury was because she was progressed too fast, because she wasn't spotted. In this particular case, I got out in a deposition, and it just another practice tip. When you're doing a deposition, don't get too stuck to your notes. Um, when I looked into the background of this trainer, he was a big, muscular, athletic-looking guy. And, um, and it turns out he played football. Uh, for a pretty well-known school and a pretty good sports program in college. And so I asked him, I said, uh, so what position did you play? And he said, cornerback. I said, oh, cornerback, not quarterback, but cornerback, a defensive back. And I said, oh, I said, some people say that the cornerback is the most talented athlete on the field on a football team. You agree with that? He said, oh, shucks, yeah, I think I'd agree with that. I'd say, because you got to be fast, you got to dive, you got to intercept balls, you got to cover fast wide receivers. Yeah, yeah. And I said, but my client that you're having to do this tap up, that you're training to do it, she fell. You claim you were spotting her, but you didn't even get a hand on her, did you? You didn't even lay a hand on her. Um, so I thought that went pretty well. And, it, and we ended up going to trial. And uh, my expert came in, testified. Um, he gave demonstrations of how to progress. These cases are great, by the way, uh, for trial because I love to be demonstrative. I love to use my hands. So whenever I have fitness cases, I'm always lifting the weights. And uh, all right, I brought out in this case the chair and I'm doing the toe tap and I'm showing how hard it is to do. And so anyway, my expert came and he, he showed how first you do it on the ground. And then he went over to the step where the witness steps up to the jury box and it was a low step, a few inches. He says, then you have her do it on this low step. And uh, then you give her an exercise ball or something to hold in her hands because then it's harder. And he, he progressed and showed it himself in front of the jury. And they were able to see and understand clearly how going to a 12-inch high uh, uh, platform to do it um, is just an immediate progression that was dangerous to do. And uh, we got a verdict, 100% liability, uh, that the gym um, was liable uh, uh, vicariously liable for the actions of the trainer. Uh, we settled the case uh, before going to a damages trial. So I've had really good success with personal trainer negligence cases. If there's a serious injury involved and you're considering it, uh, if you're a plaintiff's lawyer but have never handled one of these cases, I recommend that you try it out, take it in. Uh, I'd be happy to speak with you, help you through it, give you some good guidance on the case. Uh, most of you know that I'm very accessible uh, and I take a lot of pride and enjoyment in helping other lawyers out, working through their issues, their problems, any kind of case, any kind of trial preparing for. So of course I'll help you with it. Uh, if you're doing defense work um, and you've never defended cases like this, you know, try it out. They're good cases to work on and defend and get knowledgeable about. There's really sort of a handful of insurance companies I've come across uh, that insure trainers and gyms. Off the top of my head, Philadelphia Insurance Company, K&K Insurance, uh, I see those quite a bit and uh, they, they insure a lot of gyms. So if you have relationships with those, you may want to explore um, potential uh, opportunities on the defense side as well. And, um, you know, I wish you luck and I hope that, um, you know, you picked up a couple of pointers in uh, how to handle these cases. Again, even though we're talking mostly about personal trainers, uh, 
the theory is the same throughout the fitness industry. If it's a rock climbing gym and you're getting one-on-one instruction, you know, are they training the person properly, tying them off properly? Um, again, if it's going to be a class that someone joins, uh, classes, cases are harder. If you're the one person that got injured in a group fitness class, or if it's solely an instructional gym, you're going to have waiver issues. So it's really doing your homework getting as much factual information and investigative information as possible, and then knowing, okay, instructing gym, training gym, general amusement, what are we dealing with? Let's look at the waivers, let's look at the documents, let's look at the injury, let's see how serious it is. Um, and once you really sort of pull these out, you can then apply um, all these areas of law and expertise that uh, I shared with you. So I wish you luck on that. I hope you found it helpful. Hey. At least uh, the hour hopefully went by fast and uh, it's only really been 55 minutes. You can get a CLE credit for it here in New York and possibly in other places too. You could reach out to the Academy. I thank the New York State of Academy for sponsoring uh, this episode. Um, my, uh, I appreciate you listening. Thank you for staying in touch with me. I will continue to mix in the CLE skills types classes uh, and credit uh, earning podcasts as much as possible. I'm looking forward to, I've got some great guests lined up for uh, later the season. We've got some live events coming up, uh, which is really cool too. So please be on the lookout for that. Uh, please share my podcast with those you think might be interested. Please subscribe. So the new ones load up automatically. Uh, please follow me on Instagram at the mentor ESQ. Uh, I thank you again, and uh, I'm wishing you all uh, safety uh, during these strange times uh, and good health and much success. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ.